You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, reach in the seats in front of you. You can find 1 Corinthians 12 on page 959. And we are continuing a mini-series that we are focused on what we are about as a church. We are about making disciples, but making healthy disciples. Healthy disciples are those who worship Christ and walk with him, but also this week we'll focus on working for him. And I just want to celebrate what God is doing through our church by just acknowledging, as has been already said, so many people who were working yesterday for the fall festival. It was awesome to be able to talk to neighbors of ours who were serving, have only been attending two or three times, but they found an hour designation and they came and they served. It's great to see new people who have been coming in the summer who are faithfully serving. It's great to see people who are part of our original launch group who are serving and everyone in between. And then to see people from our community come and maybe you're visiting with us this morning for the first time because of the event yesterday. It's just awesome to be able to see that working for Christ is taking place. But, but we want to focus in on the why of that. We say work for Christ not because it's a, an ascend DNA topic, but because Christ thinks it's important. And because he has provided it as a, a blueprint, not just to help the team, but also to help us as players. Many of you know that I, I love baseball. And, and growing up, I was introduced to baseball in, in my earliest moments of recollection. In those early days of baseball, I was introduced to the fact that everybody plays and everybody wins. Actually, no, back in the 80s, everybody did not win. I mean, today it's like you when they're five years old, you cannot give them winners or losers. Yes, you can. There are winners and there are losers. And back in those days, though, everybody played every position. Everybody uh, got to participate. Everybody was a pitcher. Everybody was a first baseman. But it really didn't matter who won as a five-year-old because there were juice boxes at the end. And that was what was most important. But as I got older, what I realized is that, no, no, not everybody is a pitcher. Some people are wired for speed and defense. Some people are wired for power hitting. Some people, God just looked down and and touched them with an incredible fastball. He didn't do that for me. In fact, when I was recruited in high school, the, the coach came up to me after the game, after I had pitched, and he said, hey, I can tell you one thing. You are a good batting practice pitcher. Yeah, that, for those of you who know baseball, that was not a compliment. But what I found as I got older is it's important to realize that the objective of teams is not just to win the game, but also to develop the players. They go hand in hand. If all you care about as a coach is winning, you will not develop your players, and that is a fail. If all you care about as a team member is developing your skills, it will not contribute to the winning of the team, and they go hand in hand. And I learned that in baseball, but I think God came up with a better analogy. The analogy is the the human body. 
And so what we're going to do in this passage is we're going to unpack God's blueprint for us as individual believers to contribute to the win of the team, the local church, but also in the process, develop our skills and our gifts, and most importantly, grow in looking more like Christ. Look at the big idea in your notes. If you are saved, you have been transformed and are on a new team. That's very important, and we'll unpack that in this passage. But as a a new team member, you've been given gifts that are intended to be provided to you as a privilege and a responsibility to work the win-win of discipleship. Let me read our passage, and then we'll unpack it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, it says, For just as one is the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. A fascinating passage. Some of it may have sounded redundant. But the fact is, is that every word, every phrase is intentional. And I believe has intense application for us today. The outline provides a kind of long sentence that I pray as you write it down and learn about it, it will actually equip us to live in a way that God will produce even more fruit for the gospel over the next 12 years. The first question 
Point number one, are you transformed? Are you transformed? Listen, this is a great reminder that the preaching of the word is not for the person next to you. It's for you. It's for you as an individual to engage with. And the question from these first verses is for you specifically to ask and answer, are you transformed? Look at the first word of verse 12. It says for. The word for is a signal for the reader to understand that the the writer is actually unpacking more information based on the previous information. And so it moves our attention back to verses 1 through 11. And in so doing, let me summarize it by going back to baseball. What Paul is doing in verses 1 through 11 is he's going through the different positions on the field and speaking to them in detail. He's talking about shortstops who need to have soft hands and and have wide range and to be able to have a strong arm and second basemen who are supposed to be dependable and they're supposed to work in tandem with the shortstop. And even as I'm doing this, some of your eyes are glassing over. But that's why Paul in the first 11 verses doesn't go into a whole lot of detail. And that's important just by way of a a reminder that we have to study God's word with an understanding of interpretive tools. We don't just look at terms like miracles and immediately assign our 21st century understanding of what that means. We have to understand, first of all, that there is an ancient context for this book, but also understand there's a historical context. Paul had already spent much time with this church. And so Paul is referencing things for this church in this passage that they already had more information about. And so for us in the 21st century, sitting here in Olathe, reading these texts, we don't just read these verses, we read these verses in light of all of Scripture. And when we do that, it allows us to make sure that we're letting the Scripture move to our our understanding rather than our own autonomy. And so what Paul is doing in the first 11 verses is going through different positions on the field of the local church of his day and explaining all of the different roles and responsibilities and describing it as a privilege and responsibility. But then when he gets to verse 12, he's taking kind of a step away from all of that detailed descriptions and analysis, and he's giving a big picture. And the big picture is that the local church should be filled with people who have been transformed. Look at what he says, for just as one body has many members, all of the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, what I do like about this is that he does tip his hat toward diversity. There are many members in the local church. And in fact, he has said, and we'll say again, there is a variety of gifts. There is diversity. Just look around you, there is diversity. And I love that. But that word has been tainted in our culture today. Diversity has taken on a role God never intended it. Listen to this quote. We celebrate diversity by investing in the community. We celebrate diversity by investing in the community. 
Diversity was never intended to be our identity. But in our culture today, diversity is our identity, isn't it? I mean, whether it's the color of our skin, whether it's our ethnicity background, whether it's our status of married or single, whether it's our status of married or divorced, adopted or birth parents, like all of these important, diverse identities have been elevated to primary in our society. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, diversity is important. Diversity should be celebrated, but not at the expense of unity. Not at the expense of our primary identity. Look at what our primary identity is. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. All were made to drink one spirit. Our identity is that we have been baptized by the spirit. Our identity is that we have drinking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our identity, would you write this down, is the gospel if you have been transformed. That is our identity. Now what's fascinating about this is that Paul uses these these terms that for us really are not relevant, it seems, on the surface. He says Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. We don't see a whole lot of people in Johnson County walking around declaring to somebody, I'm a Gentile. I'm a Greek. But this was very important in the first century. We don't have this concept of slavery or free in our culture. And we know the history of our country, but let's lay that aside and understand the culture that Paul was writing in. Slavery was part of the economic system of the Roman Empire. There were horrors with it, but it also wasn't all bad. It was the identity that you had socially or economically. Many of these people actually were able to live and survive because of their slave status, but it affected how you could function in the Roman Empire. And so you had a system and a culture where identity was so important, your ethnic heritage, your social and economic heritage, but write down Galatians 3.28, in Christ, all of those things are secondary. In Christ, whether you've been divorced or remarried is not your primary identity. In Christ, if you're African American or Caucasian, is not your primary identity. In Christ, if you are single, that is not your primary identity. And we could go on and on and on. And why am I harping on this? Because our culture has it upside down, and that has bled into the church. And Paul saw that that had happened in Corinth, the same thing that had happened. In fact, when you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, you can see that people were actually saying, wait a minute, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, I I am actually of Jesus. And they were setting up divisions, and that can happen in the church. Listen, if you have been transformed, your identity is Christ, full stop. And that allows you to be able to engage with people from different economic backgrounds, from from different age backgrounds. That's why I love our small groups. 
We do have small groups that are men only or women only, and we have small groups that are, are, are young people or, or different stages of life. But what, what I love is the majority of small groups are blended. And what a visible reminder that is, is so is the body of Christ. We are blended, but under one Christ. Now, let me just take a, a pit stop for a moment. Because we have a lot of people who have been coming over the summer, a lot of people who are new to ascend. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page with what Paul is saying here about baptism. If you were asked the question, are you transformed, and your answer points to baptism, I want to educate you. Water baptism or sprinkling baptism does not save you. If you are depending and and relying on some baptism that has taken place in your life for your salvation, I want to just move you to study scripture and to see that is not what saves you. We talked about this last week, but I want to remind you that salvation comes when you surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Surrender comes when you acknowledge that God is holy and that you are a sinner. And because of that, there is a chasm that cannot be crossed by you. You need someone else. That someone else is Christ. And because of his life, his death, his resurrection, and the fact that he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, that has made a way for you to respond to that by putting your faith in him, turning from your sin, and making him king of your life. And if you've done that, then all water baptism is, is a symbolic uh, testimony to your church family that, look, I'm already saved, and this is what has taken place. I was dead, and I was buried, but in Christ I've been made alive, and that symbolism is all that baptism is. It does not save you, okay? And so some of you might be kind of a little bit uncomfortable right now. And you might want to wrestle through that a little bit more. All I would say is just email us. E- email us at info at ascendkc.org. We will get you in touch with some people who can come alongside of you to be able to better answer your questions. Because baptism does not save you. Your faith and repentance and surrender does. It's the completed work of Christ, friends. Now, Paul is actually not talking about water baptism here, I don't believe, any more than he is that there's a ceremony where you actually drink the Holy Spirit. What Paul's doing here is using water analogies, water illustrations to show that there is an actual event, there is an actual transformation that moves us from being Jew and Greek, from being slave and free, from being all of these different human designations that we can come up with in our diversity to a one body. And so the question that I ask as a result of verses 12 and 13 is, have you been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ by putting your faith and trust in him and turning from your sins? If you have, then let's move on because our identity is Christ. If you haven't, please do that this morning. So are you transformed? Then number two, then your diversity is for others. Your diversity is for others. And listen, we all bring different life experiences, don't we? 
We all bring different skills and talents and personalities, and we all bring that to this local church. And that's awesome. We had a lunch this last week that our team puts on that if you are new to Ascend, you can come and we can meet you and you can meet us and you can learn more about what we're about as a church. And I love those events for many different reasons, but one of them is this, is that as people begin to say where they're from or where they work, there's all of these connection points. And people say, wait a minute, I, I work there. Or you know what, I grew up in that same town or I went to that high school. And we realize that all of this diversity and all of these backgrounds actually kind of bleed together. The diversity is for others. Look at verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. We are diverse. But then he starts to go through these analogies. And they're absurd statements, aren't they? I mean, one of them is like this foot that's hopping around. That's declaring, I'm not part of the body. Which, by the way, how can that happen? There's no mouth. It says that there's nobody that is one body part, except for Mike Wazowski. You can look it up later, Monsters, Inc. He's going through all of these absurd statements to, to make a point. And that is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, just as absurd as it is for a foot to be hopping around, so it is absurd for you to do the Christian life on your own. And I hear this. I hear this from people who who claim to be followers of Christ. And maybe they are. Maybe they're in a dry spot. Maybe they've been hurt so badly they just can't see the forest through the trees. But listen, a follower of Jesus Christ who does not attend and plug into a local church is a foreign concept to Scripture. A genuine believer of Christ who just does it on their own and just does their own study and listens to podcasts and does not engage in worship, walk, and work in the local church is a foreign concept to the New Testament. That's the point of these absurd statements. But it's also the point of these absurd statements that we should not be jealous of each other. We shouldn't look at somebody else and see their role and to say, oh, I wish I could be that. Paul is using these absurd statements to draw us in to unity. Now, does Paul throw out diversity? Not at all. He acknowledges diversity. He celebrates diversity. But here's a quote I would encourage you not just to to write down, but to engage with. Listen to this. Members are not allowed to celebrate diversity at at the expense of the group or team or in order to isolate themselves. Members are not allowed to celebrate diversity at the expense of the group or in order to isolate themselves. But again, that is our society. All you, watch football games today and, and see the commercials out there, and you will see that the society that we live in celebrates diversity at the expense of the group or team. 
Watch the Olympics and see how that has changed over the years where now the the participants and the athletes are more about their brand and image than they are about the stars and stripes. The point is, is we live in a society that if we're not careful and if we're not reminding ourselves about these truths, this can bleed into the local church. Paul says, of course, diversity, but not at the expense of the group. I have to tell you, I struggle with this from time to time because I get tired. I get hurt. You know where I really struggle with this? Is when I get together with other pastors. This is, this is vulnerable time. I love our senior pastors and wives retreat. I love the conferences like we went to the lead conference down in San Antonio. But, but I have to tell you, I see others preach and I think, oh, I'm horrible. I, I, I see others in, in the way that they lead and I think, oh, I just don't get it. Isn't it easy? Isn't it easy to be so self-deprecating that you don't remember that this is Christ's work? Isn't it easy to be so interested in what others are doing, what they have, and what they accomplish that you forget that this isn't our identity? Our identity is Christ. It's so easy for us, and it's so subtle. And listen, what ends up happening, and one of the ways you can tell if this is happening to you, is when you begin to look at the local church, and you begin to evaluate it and make your decisions on whether you're going to continue to attend based on some consumer topic, based on what you get out of it, based on whether you like the music, you like the preacher. Those are topics. Those should be evaluated. But if you haven't engaged, if you haven't connected to the body, if you haven't contributed and put your diversity of gifts and skills and life experience into the use to build up the body of Christ, then, friend, you haven't gotten to a place where you can truly, fully evaluate whether or not this is the church for you. Friend, the question to ask yourself from this text, from verses 12 through 13, is have you been transformed? But then if the answer is yes, Then we move to verses 14 through 16 to remember that our diversity is for others. Number three, because we are a body. We are a body. And Paul continues the absurdity and he asks these rhetorical questions. The rhetorical questions are are asked in such a way where where you're not expected to answer. (laughs) The answer is understood. And so Paul's asking all of these rhetorical questions. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And he's asking these questions not because he doesn't know. He's asking the questions in such a way where he's making a point. And the point is not the question. The point is the response. He says, you're being transformed, verse 18, by God. God has arranged. You're being transformed with diversity. And friend, you being here at Ascend Church is not a coincidence. You know, in 12 years, we've had people come. We've had people go. 
remember one week in particular where an older gentleman, I, I have continued to value the voice of older gentlemen in my life. I, I love that. I long for that. And I remember this older gentleman who was kind of a mentor to me, and I was praying that maybe he could be an elder in our church, and he came in and said, Jeff, we need to talk. As a pastor, I've learned through the years that usually does not mean that he just wants to come in and celebrate all the good things that are going on in the church. And so this mentor of mine came into my office and shared how there was reasons he and his wife felt they should be led to go back to their previous church to make sure that relationships have been taken care of, that there was harmony, that there was peace. And everything that he said made biblical sense. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, we're only a few years into this church plant. You are going to be an elder in this church. This is going to remove such an important family from our church. I don't even think we will survive. That next Sunday, I was introduced to a young man out in the parking lot who had just moved from Iowa, and now he's the chairman of our elders. There's something about the the local church of God arranging and and, and moving people on and bringing people in and and bringing diversity to contribute to the body. I, I love this. And this is what Paul is getting at when he's, he's making these absurd rhetorical questions. Verse 20, he says, we are all members of one body. Therefore, verse 21, everyone is significant and everyone is needed. You know, there was a gentleman that was sitting in the office as I was coming into the auditorium and he was working on the live stream. And many of you are watching right now because of our team that faithfully contributes to our live stream being able to be on. There was a a group of people who got the duck donuts that you'll be able to enjoy as you head out. I I left with my family at 5.30 yesterday, but the event ended at 6, and there was a team that made sure that everything was cleaned up, made sure that everything was ready for this morning. And friends, there is no insignificant person There is no insignificant role. Every one of you are needed. Every one of the roles are needed. And some are more visible, but they are not more important. I hear people in the context of the local church who are just people. I'm just this. I just do that. But what Paul's unpacking here is that there are no justs. The body needs all the parts. There are no insignificant people or roles. That's awesome. That means you. But again, we we can take a consumer mentality. We can find a reason to complain about a church, can't we? But listen to this quote by Jonathan Lehman. Do you want to experience and exercise the glorious love of heaven as Christ asks us? Then do it in a local church. Referencing the church in Corinth, he says, a church where factions are pitted against one another, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. People have big heads, chapter 4, verse 8. Members are suing and defrauding one another, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Members are getting drunk with communion wine, chapter 11, verse 21 through 22. Spiritual gift one-upmanship, chapters 12, verse 14. Sounds like a great church, doesn't it? 
And yet what's interesting is that Paul's letter to the Corinthians isn't leave the church. It's actually get it right. It's actually here's where you're in error. Here's what scripture says. Make sure that you correct it. And what's awesome is that we have 2 Corinthians, which is most likely 3 Corinthians, and there's evidence there in 2 Corinthians that they did make changes. So listen, what Jonathan Lehman is not saying is just turn your head to these things if they're going on. What he is saying is that there is going to be problems in the local church. The scriptures give us the blueprint and our job isn't to just run away with it. It's to engage. And if you want to be able to experience and exercise the glories that God has entrusted to us this side of eternity, then it takes place in the context of the local church. So are you transformed? Then your diversity is for others. Because we are a body. Now let me just say here that we have taken these scriptures and others and actually applied it through formal church membership. People say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about formal church membership. Well, it does. And it gives us principles that I think for us as elders, we've drawn a conclusion that formal church membership is an appropriate, reasonable, and I think a responsible application of these principles. Why? Because we live in a culture where commitment is rarely upheld. Just look at the divorce rate in our country. Look at how many memberships you can just cancel anytime you want. We live in a culture, again, and a society that does not hold in high regard commitment. And so, again, that can bleed into the local church where our involvement in the local church is just like our involvement with a Netflix subscription. And that is when we begin to get bored with it or when we begin to not like some detail about it, we just cancel it and we move on. But, but that's not the concept of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is about engaging and worshiping and walking and working. And I as an individual have a responsibility and a privilege to, compute, com, to, 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 to participate and to commit. And it is win-win for the church as well as me. And that's the local church. Now, is there ever a reason to move on and transfer your membership? Sure there is. People move locations. People get to a place where they believe the leadership is not following the doctrines of Scripture and they followed the process of talking to them and praying and have humility and they get to a place like Paul and Barnabas did in Acts 15 where they just can't continue in unity and those things happen. But I think we are too quick to pull the trigger. I think it's too easy for us to just not come back. And so I think Paul's instruction to all of us for 21st century Americans who profess the name of Christ is, remember, the local church is to be engaged with. It is a body where the members are working together so that the body functions. That's Paul's reminder. And the application brings us to number four. We are designed to function in unity. We are designed to function in unity. Verse 27, this is the body of Christ. He says, now you are all the body of Christ and individually members of it. Again, he's, he's not removing the fact that there are individuals, there's variety, there's diversity. He, he's acknowledging that. 
But he wants us to remember that we exercise our diversity and our individuality for the benefit of the body. And then he gets into spiritual gifts, and that's kind of an interesting topic, isn't it? Maybe you've come from a background of church where spiritual gifts are something that you actually determine through a spiritual gift inventory sheet. There can be use to that and for that. But a couple things to remember right here from the text. Verse 28, God has appointed. Remember, this is kind of like my, my frustration with people who say espresso versus espresso. Let's not call gifts what the Bible doesn't call gifts. The people who are up here playing music and singing are not gifted musicians in the spiritual gift sense. As you look at the list of spiritual gifts, you don't see anything where it's like some were gifted musically. This is a skill that people are putting forth for the glory of Christ and the benefit of the body. Spiritual gifts are something that we are given at conversion. That's Ephesians 4. Spiritual gifts are something that God has appointed, verse 28. And we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, your spiritual gifts have one venue and one purpose in mind, and that is the local church for building it up. That is the point of spiritual gifts. And so Paul goes through a list similar to Ephesians 4, 11, God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, but then he gets into other specific gifts. And again, let's not put our 21st century understanding of these gifts and impose it on the text. Let's actually understand what the gifts were in the Bible times and what their purpose were. And as you begin to study that from all of the New Testament, it informs whether or not these are alive and well today. When you look at gifts like miracles and gifts of healing and tongues, and you look at how those actually played out in Acts, I think we can argue pretty strongly from the New Testament that those are not needed today. For somebody to have the gift of miracles, hear me on this, not saying miracles don't happen. What I'm saying is the spiritual gift, that I would have the gift of miracles so that when a miracle was necessary, I could do it in that moment with no problem. That's not today. Because when you look at the book of Acts and when you see miracles and healings and tongues, there was always purpose. And here's what the purpose was as you look at Acts. It was to authenticate the message and the messenger. Would you write that down? When you look at the Gospels and the book of Acts and you see miracles and healings and tongues, it was for the purpose of authenticating the message and the messenger. Just think about that transition time. For thousands of years, it was the Mosaic Covenant. For thousands of years, it was prophets, priests, and kings. For thousands of years, it was a sacrifice system. And now these groups of individuals from Galilee are coming around saying, no, 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 that that carpenter was actually the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. There's no longer need for sacrifices. Wait a minute, we don't need prophets, priests, and kings anymore. Because guess what? God is raising up a priesthood of believers. And you can imagine how people are saying, oh, now wait a minute. How do I know that's right? 
Well, here's a miracle. Here's healings. Now, I'm speaking to you in your dialogue, not just your language. Like, you know, when I'm trying to speak Spanish or something like that, I sound like an English guy trying to speak Spanish. Or actually, I'm not speaking Spanish right now. (laughs) That's not tongues. Tongues is if somebody walked in here from a foreign country and heard me speak to them exactly as though I was natural from their country. That's what tongues is in Acts. That is amazing, and it was for the purpose of sharing clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ with all people from all nations so that there were no limitations, and people were amazed by those things. And when they saw those things, they realized, wow, this is from God. We don't need that anymore because we have this. So if I preach something to you and you're like, oh, I don't know if that sounds right. It's not a miracle that you need. You just have to study the scriptures. And so Paul is addressing these gifts that were present in his day during this time of transition, but also some that are still around today. They're helping and administrating. But then here's what he says. Remember, there are individuals that have roles and privileges like team members. Verse 29, are all apostles? The implied answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Speak with tongues, interpret? No, no, no. We each are given gifts. We each have been wired and and crafted and given life experiences to contribute to the body of Jesus Christ. But then he says something in verse 31, and actually it sets up all of chapter 13, he says, but earnestly desire the higher higher gifts and I will show you a more excellent way, which is humble, sacrificial love. So why does Paul say in verse 31 to earnestly desire the higher gifts? Would you write out to the side? I think what Paul is saying here from the text is earnestly desire the higher gifts to thrive. I think that's what he's saying. I I don't think what he's saying is earnestly desire that you have the higher gifts. Earnestly desire that you have the more visible gifts. I think, again, if you're following the flow of what Paul's talking about in the text, he's saying all of us should earnestly desire the higher gifts to thrive. And that's going to create humility for us, isn't it? Because Paul understood there is a dark side to diversity. Humanity has fallen. And no matter what gifts and roles we have, there's always going to be the temptation for sin. Think about this. People who have strong teaching gifts, isn't there a temptation for pride? How about people who are strong exhorters? There's the gift of exhortation. Isn't there a temptation to be impatient? I told you what you need to do. Why aren't you doing it? How about hospitable people? People who have the gift of hospitality. They love being behind the scenes. They love putting others out in front. They love contributing. Isn't there a temptation there to not confront? We need each other. We offset each other. We learn from each other. And Paul says here at the very end, after he's covered the transformation, after he's covered the diversity, after he's covered the unity and the body, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, to thrive, and we do so through agape, Christ-reflecting love.